Joshua chapter 1, we'll look at the first nine verses this morning. This is the 50th week of our study of God's great historical deliverance of his people out of Egypt and his merciful care for them during 40 years in the wilderness and his faithfulness to bring them into the land of Canaan. We're about to finish this study, I think, two more weeks after today. Today we turn our attention to Joshua, whom God commissioned to complete this task. And we want to read some of that uh, commission of Joshua in the first nine verses of this book. Follow as I read. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. One of the many great quotations coming out of uh, World War II was Winston Churchill saying, This is no time for ease and comfort. It is the time to dare and to endure. Our text this morning has a similar great statement of encouragement from the Lord himself. Be strong and very courageous. Surely this exhortation is the theme of this passage, for no less than four times it is repeated. Be strong and courageous. We read it in verse 6, again in verse 7, again in verse 9, and again down in verse 18. Be strong and courageous. But these words are not just empty motivational hype. There are reasons for God's people to be strong and courageous. And that's what our text is about this morning. Three reasons to be encouraged. Three reasons that we should be strong and courageous. And those are our three points this morning. The first is this. God's purposes have not changed. Be strong and courageous for God's purposes have not changed. Tuesday is the 4th of July, Independence Day in this United States. But one has only to read the news every day to realize that people's vision for our country today is much different than it was in 1776. And that uncertainty concerning what 
we are about, what we're even trying to be, breeds confusion and, and indecision and a certain national lack of resolve. But such is not the case in regard to God's unfolding plans. God's purposes have not changed. Joshua needed to hear this, for he faced difficult days. Verse 1 begins by reporting that Moses had died. But Moses was Israel's great leader. Israel didn't know what it was to be Israel without Moses. Moses was the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was Moses who led them through the desert. It was Moses who communicated God's will to them. It was Moses who interceded for them when God was angry at them over their sin. Moses was like God to them. How could they go on if Moses is dead? In fact, Moses was more than just Israel's leader. Moses was Joshua's mentor. As a young man, Joshua served under Moses. Moses' influence on him had been profound. We see it throughout this book as he mentions Moses no less than 57 times. How can Joshua go on if Moses is dead? Joshua needed to hear God's encouragement in this time of apparent tragedy. Yes, Moses is dead, but you be strong and courageous, for God's purposes have not changed one bit. But Joshua's challenge was not just a change of leadership. The people had changed. The previous generation who had come out of Egypt knew what the oppression of slavery was like. They knew what it meant to, to, to taste the thirst of for freedom. They had seen God's mighty power at work. They had seen him roll back the Red Sea that they could walk through on dry ground. They had seen him roll it back in on the Egyptian army to deliver them and destroy their enemies. But none of the people Joshua was to lead knew anything about those things. They didn't remember that. At best they were little children or perhaps not even born yet when those things happened. For their whole life they had simply been another bunch of nomads wandering in the wilderness, not that unusual in that part of the country. And now was Joshua to lead this band of nomads into battle? Could they fight as an army and defeat seven nations all stronger than them? What an impossible task lay before Joshua. No wonder God said, Joshua, you be strong and courageous. My plans have not changed. And what were God's unchanging purposes? God intended to give this land of Canaan to the children of Israel. He said, it's theirs for the taking. Every foot that you step on, it's yours for the taking. No one can stand against you. That had been God's promise to Moses, as he reminded Joshua in verse 3. In fact, this had been God's promise to their forefather Abraham some 500 years before, as God reminded Joshua in verse 6. In Genesis 15, God had spelled out the boundaries of the land that he was giving to Abraham. In Numbers 34, he had reiterated that description to Moses. And now in verse 4, he reiterates it yet again to Joshua. God's purposes have not changed in 500 years. Joshua had reason to be strong and courageous. This endeavor that he was about to set set out on was not something that was some fanciful scheme he had concocted. God had 
promised them that, him that land. And God's purposes remain unchanged. Dear people, our situation is, has much in common with Joshua's. God has clearly made known his purposes for the earth. In the Garden of Eden, God delivered what we know as the creation mandate. God's command to mankind to subdue and rule his creation in his name. But in the coming of Jesus to bring salvation to God's people, that creation mandate has become the great commission. For it is, in, it is Christ Jesus who has now been exalted as God's Messiah, God's King. All authority has been given to him. He rules over heaven and earth. And so God has commissioned us to go to the ends of the earth in Christ's name and make disciples of all nations, teaching people everywhere to know and obey Jesus, to receive his salvation and submit to his rule, teaching them to use everything their hands touch to bring glory to him, the creator, the redeemer. But as in Joshua's day, many of the people who understood God's purposes most clearly are now gone. And many great leaders who have pursued these purposes with a passion are now dead. And here we stand. A, 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 a generation accustomed to us living like everyone else. It's been so long since God revealed his purposes. The job is so far from being finished, it seems beyond hope. And what do we know about it anyway? And who is competent to lead? Oh, it's so easy to just sit back and ignore these ancient mandates. But this morning God calls to you and God calls to me. Be strong and courageous. My purposes have not changed. Of course, Churchill have put it, this is no time for ease and comfort. It's the time to dare and to endure. Well, I don't know what particular part God would have you play in his great plans, but I know that your part is not just to sit on your hands. God has made his will quite clear to his church, and God's purposes have not changed. Then let's move on to the second reason for God's encouragement to be strong and courageous, and that's this, that God has given us his word. Be strong and courageous, for God has given us his word. What is it with some people about reading the instructions? No matter how complicated the equipment, no matter how intricate the detail, no matter how minimal their understanding of the concepts involved, some people just will not open the instructions and read them. No, I can figure this out. I had a friend who knew a guy whose cousin's neighbor had one of these. I think I've about got it figured out. And so great concepts which have been applied with wonderful innovation, designed with attention to every detail and engineered with great care, come to be at the mercy of somebody who assumes he knows everything and won't even read the instructions. And nowhere is this more true than in regard to our faith. 
Yes, God has made his unchangeable purposes clear, but his saving plan, which he has unfolded over many centuries with great care, is infinitely complex and beautiful in its detail. So how could anyone just assume that they know all God's will without even reading the instructions? And folks, that's what the book of the law is. It's the book of the Torah, which means instruction. God didn't just generally make his purposes known. God has given us his word so that we will know his will in detail. That's what we read in verse 7 and 8. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. God has given us his word. Now let me just point out, before we even talk about uh, how significant, uh, what that means, let me just point out how significant that statement is found here. For years, uh, liberal scholars have assumed that the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, they've assumed that the Pentateuch is a collection of materials from many different sources, which was put together hundreds of years after Moses lived. Furthermore, it's been assumed that even after that collection was complete, that it was several hundred more years before it was considered to be sacred scripture. Oh, but that's not the picture we get in the text, is it? Listen to how Francis Schaeffer explained it. I quote, Joshua knew Moses, the writer of the Pentateuch, personally. Joshua knew his strengths and weaknesses as a man. He knew that Moses was a sinner, that Moses made mistakes, that Moses was just a man. Nonetheless, immediately after Moses' death, Joshua accepted the Pentateuch as more than the writing of Moses. He accepted it as the writing of God. Two or three hundred years were not required for the book to become sacred. As far as Joshua was concerned, the Pentateuch was the canon, the rule. And the canon was the word of God. Schaefer concludes, The biblical view of the growth and acceptance of the canon is as simple as this. When it was given, God's people understood what it was. And right away, it had authority. You see, that's why Joshua spoke of the book of the law. He had undoubtedly seen Moses working on this book for years, recording all of God's great acts, recording the laws that God revealed to him. But now he saw it for what it was, not Moses' memoirs, not Moses' journal of their travels. God had given them his word. 
Dr. James Boyce wrote that in a sense Joshua was the first of modern believers for while God spoke directly to Abraham and the, and the patriarchs and, and to Moses, Joshua, like us, was to live according to God's book, his written word. So what's Joshua to do with this instruction? Well, two things. First, he was to meditate on it. Now, this is really interesting. Verse 8 says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. What you need to know is that not letting it depart from your mouth and meditating on it are the same thing. The Hebrew word for meditate literally means to utter or mutter or moan. It's as if when you read the scriptures, you're having a conversation with the text. That's what meditation is. Discussing the text with yourself. Interacting with God's word. Chewing on it to digest it as a, as a cow chews the cud. I must tell you one little personal quirk here, if you don't mind. Apparently I have an irksome little habit that I'm totally unaware of when I do it, but my wife and my family is very aware of for it drives them crazy. When I'm reading something with real intensity, apparently I make grunting, growling, rumbling sounds. I can hear my wife. Why are you grunting again? So can you imagine my delight when in my study this week I read that the word, from the word meditate, we get the words grunting, growling, and moaning. <laughs> yes! Well, folks, such intense interaction with God's word that engages all your faculties is exactly what God has called us to do. That's the instruction in the promise of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, happy is the man, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the, of the mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. That man will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit and its season does not his leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. I ask you this morning, is this the pattern of your life? Do you find ways to take in God's word so that you can chew on it all day long? Or is your mental clock time filled with the mindless drivel of your radio or your television? We're so concerned about our food, for we have come to believe that we are what we eat. Well, what are you feeding your mind and your heart? For that's what really determines what you are. God has given us his word on which we are to meditate. But meditation is not enough. God has also given us his word to obey. God's word is not just interesting information to satisfy our curiosity. In fact, God tells us that 
though the blessings of knowing and doing his word are great, in another sense, it poses a grave danger for us to know God's word. For to know it and fail to do it brings greater condemnation than if we had just lived in ignorance. When the Bible speaks of Judgment Day, when it describes how we will give an account to God, it never talks about how much we knew or what we believed. It always talks about being held accountable for what we did with it. And this is where we begin the section. God did not just give us some general idea of his purposes and leave us to our own creative imagination to figure out how to work it out. God has given us rather detailed instruction in his word. Now the Bible is difficult to understand. Trust me, it's hard. Some of it's quite easy, but some of it is impossible. And that's why we need to chew on it and meditate on it. And that's why we need to study it in community with other believers. And that's why God has given us teachers. But Bible study is not entertainment for the Christian. We study in order that we might obey. This morning I call you to be strong and courageous in giving attention to God's word. Surely we are without excuse if we neglect this instruction. Think how difficult it was for Joshua to obey this. There was probably only one copy of the scrolls of the book of the law. And yet Joshua was to learn what was in it and to fill his mind with it and to do it and to make sure it got taught to the people. But for us, God's word is readily available. You can buy a copy of the Bible in any community. You can buy a copy of the Bible in a grocery store sometimes. In, in the best up-to-date translation imaginable. Indeed, you can get the Bible on cassette tape. You can get the Bible on CDs. You can download the Bible on MP3 files and carry it with you to listen to it any time. There are even daily devotional messages that you can have sent to your, your email automatically free of charge. If you aren't learning and thinking about and, and hearing God's word and learning to obey it, it's only because you don't care. For opportunity is everywhere. Be strong and courageous. God has given us his word. And finally, there's one more reason to be strong and courageous, which brings us to our third point. God promises us his presence. Be strong and courageous, for God promises us his presence. There is nothing that someone we love might give us which we would prize more than his or her own presence. Think of all the love songs written just to say, I'll be here for you. I want to be with you. I can't stand it when you're gone. I want you by my side. To love someone is to be with them, to be there for them, to never abandon them. And here God promises us his own presence. That's what God says to Joshua here in verse 5. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 
I will never leave or forsake you. In fact, God says it again in verse 9. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is not the first time God has promised his presence to his people. Back in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham to be his God and for Abraham to be his people, for Abraham to walk before him. And sure enough, in Genesis 26, God promised Abraham's son Isaac, stay in the land, I will be with you, I will bless you. And a few verses later, I am the God of your father Abraham, do not be afraid, I am with you. And in Genesis 28, God made the same promise to Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. I am with you, God said. We'll watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Later when God called Moses to go back down into Egypt to deliver his people, Moses said, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I can't do this. And God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. And sure enough, he was. God was present in great power and great majesty as Moses went down to deliver the people out of Egypt. And then the day came that Israel sinned by making and worshiping the golden calf. And for the first time, God said these most frightening words. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Well, Moses knew that they were nothing without God's presence. Moses pleaded with God. If your presence does not go with us, don't send us. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the earth? And God relented, and in his mercy and in his grace, he went with them. So God dwelt in the midst of his people. And then toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 31, at the end of Moses' life, he passed this promise on to Joshua. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. The Lord himself goes before you. He will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And then here in Joshua 1, the Lord reiterates the same promise himself. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Throughout the scriptures, God promised his presence to his people. In fact, Hebrews 13 quotes this very passage. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But folks, the Old Testament saints, though totally dependent upon God's presence with them, never dreamed of the fullness and the intimacy with which God would come to dwell with his people beginning on the day of Pentecost. Jesus describes it in John 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. You know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Indeed, Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven were, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus' presence by means of his spirit was so important to the success of God's people that Jesus told his disciples, Don't leave Jerusalem. Don't go out with the gospel until the spirit comes to dwell with you. And sure enough, on the day of Pentecost, God poured out his spirit on his church. 
God himself came to live in the midst of his church with power and with the promise to never leave or forsake us. God has promised his presence and fulfilled that promise by sending his spirit. Oh, child of God, this morning it may seem that God is far off, that he has forgotten you. That is not the case. He has promised again and again through the ages, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So now in your hour of darkness and despair, don't doubt God's word. You may not see him, but he sees you. You may not discern his working in your life, but he is in control of every detail, even the terrible tragedies of life, working his good promises, his good purposes for you. So even when you don't feel it, indeed especially when you don't feel it, I call you to be strong and courageous, for God has promised us his presence. You know, we live in a fast-changing world. Everything changes and becomes obsolete so quickly that we lose any sense that there's such a thing as enduring truth. But there's one glaring exception. God's purposes have not changed. He intends to fill the world with the knowledge of and allegiance to his son Jesus. That will not change until it's complete. We live in a world of widespread relativism. Nothing is thought to be true in itself. Things are only true or false depending on the situation. And tomorrow it might be different. But this morning I tell you there's one thing that's not relative. God has spoken in his word. It is ours to digest and to do. Finally, we live in a world of lonely isolation. Even when, when surrounded by people, we're often lonely. Many of us know no real intimacy of relationship, not even one really good friend, and so we feel isolated, and, uh, we, and we feel powerless, and we feel unable to face what might be out there. But this morning, I have good news for you. God has promised us his presence. Indeed, the presence of the living spirit of Christ in the midst of his church empowers us to do what we know to be impossible and to be filled with unspeakable joy. So this morning I call you, be strong and courageous. May God grant you the encouragement that comes from understanding these truths of his word set before you this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it's good to hear how you dealt with Joshua as he stood, probably feeling quite alone, facing insurmountable challenge with
people that he had very little reason to have confidence in. So Lord, whatever our situation, it's probably not that frightening. So may we hear your encouragement to him and take it to ourselves to be strong and encouragement and uh, strong and, uh, and, and courageous. Thank you, Lord, for these truths that you set before us. May we take them to heart and chew on them and see how they apply in our lives that we might live out your purposes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.